0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, historical archaeologist Kathy Deegan has made some amazing discoveries.
1: I first learned about Fort Mose uh, when I was a student at the University of Florida in the early 1970s, and uh, one of my professors, Charles Fairbanks, was very interested in, in learning more about Fort Mose. And I was a, a student on one of the digs he brought over here to St. Augustine to try and locate it.
0: We'll
2: discuss Seminole Indian clothing designed for Florida tourists. These garments were being produced not necessarily to be worn, although they certainly were uh, being worn, but they were being produced specifically for the tourism trade. These were souvenirs.
0: And we'll talk about how indigenous peoples used pipes All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Historical archaeologist Kathy Deegan is distinguished research curator and professor emerita from the University of Florida. She led a series of excavations that identified the original encampment of Pedro Menendez de Aviles from 1565. From that encampment, the city of St. Augustine was established as the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in what is now the United States.
1: We began that project in the 70s, thinking we were going to be studying an Indian village. And over the years, as our sample became larger, we realized, wait a minute, this isn't like anything we've ever seen in a Native American town. Square buildings made with nails, and when we found a barrel well filled with mid-16th century Spanish artifacts, we realized this must be the Menendez encampment, but everybody had assumed that had been washed away decades ago by the tidal creeks and the hurricanes, and so we changed our strategy and bit by bit have been uncovering that settlement. But that was uh, almost a surprise, but a very exciting one.
0: For more than 40 years, Deegan led annual excavations in St. Augustine in what is now the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park and at the adjacent Mission Nombre de Dios. Identifying the starting point of America's oldest, continuously-occupied city would seem to be the crowning achievement of any archaeologist's career. It's not her four decades of work in the heart of St. Augustine, though, that Deegan identifies as her most significant accomplishment. Deegan believes that her most important work was the excavation of Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mose, better known as Fort Mose. Established in 1738 by Manuel Montiano, governor of Spanish colonial Florida, Fort Mose was the first free black settlement to be legally established in what would become the United States. The community was located just north of St. Augustine.
1: I first learned about Fort Mose uh, when I was a student at the University of Florida in the early 1970s, and uh, one of my professors, Charles Fairbanks, was very interested in in learning more about Fort Mose, and I was a a student on one of the digs he brought over here to St. Augustine to try and locate it.
0: Deegan built on the work of Fairbanks leading her own excavations at the Fort Mose site in the mid-1980s. She was able to conclusively identify the location of the fort on an island in the middle of a wet, marshy area.
1: It is an area that uh, is hard to work in uh, because it's in the middle of a marsh and much of the marsh area has been dredged. So you couldn't exactly walk there and you couldn't uh, really take a vehicle of any kind. But uh, for some reason, the dredging in this area managed to leave the spot where the fort itself is intact. And we've often wondered if those 19th century earth movers had a sense that that's where the fort was. But for archeologists, it was a matter of putting on your high boots and slogging through the mud. And uh, we had a lot of students out there. Uh, We issued them all their black rubber boots. And once you're on the actual site itself, which is a small marsh island here behind me, it is high ground. Uh, We learned that the site actually has been occupied by people for hundreds and hundreds of years. There was a prehistoric Timuqua Indian site there, and then very briefly there was an Appalachian mission after 1704, and then Fort Mose. And so once you're on the site, it's normal excavation, digging through shell and dirt and tree roots.
0: Deegan and her team were able to provide context for the discoveries that they made on the small marsh island north of St. Augustine, proving that they had uncovered the site of Fort Mose.
1: A lot of the archaeological work at Fort Mose actually was oriented toward the architecture. Uh, It was necessary for us to show that um, this was in fact Fort Mose. And uh, so it was really exciting to us when we were able to plot the moat and dig and locate where the moat itself for the fort was in several places and it really had to be Fort Mose. Uh, The artifacts were of the right time period. There weren't a lot of artifacts, but they were all really interesting. Some things you would associate with soldiers, uniform buttons, lots of rum bottles, tobacco pipes, uh, and things you'd associate with family life, thimbles and pins, buttons, pottery for cooking, pottery for eating, and uh, it was just a, I think an exciting process to suddenly realize, yes, this is the site of the place that there's been so much controversy about. Where was it? Did it really exist was even you know, the thinking in some ways.
0: The population of the community at Fort Mose consisted primarily of former slaves who had escaped from British colonies to the north into Spanish-controlled Florida. The Spanish government encouraged this immigration of British slaves by granting them freedom in exchange for their conversion to Catholicism and a pledge to defend St. Augustine from British invasion. Kathy Deegan.
1: Yes, when the people uh, arrived here from the plantations in the Carolinas, they, um, they were obligated to become Catholic in order to gain freedom, to be emancipated. It was a religious sanctuary is the way the Spaniards looked at it. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication at all that this was uh, problematical or distasteful to any of the people of Mose. They had their children baptized in the church. Their records are there. They had godparents and um, throughout the town. And so from every outward appearance, they fully embraced the um, notion of religious conversion. Now, whether they thought that, uh, we, we don't know, but uh, we didn't, for example, find any kind of material culture that would suggest one of the syncretic religions that you see so often in, in Latin America where Catholicism is blended with a, a, a non-Christian tradition. Um, we didn't see that at all at Mose, but. Uh, that doesn't mean people weren't thinking.
0: Meticulous research of historical documents combined with the material discoveries at the Fort Mose site produced a much more complete picture of what life was like for people of African descent in 18th century Florida.
1: There are times when I have thought the best thing that came out of the archeology span was the history. Uh, Because as part of the project, really before we begin, we always want to have a, a, a real historian uh, search the records, do original research, so we just don't find out what they really already knew. And at that time, in really the 70s and early 80s, the thinking was that uh, there's disenfranchised people—African Americans, slaves, women, children, poor people—didn't have a history. And the idea was it's up to the archaeologists to to provide a history of words from the earth, but. When Jane Landers, who was a graduate student working with me at the time, went to Spain to specifically look for information about the people of Mose, uh, we were all astounded at the amount of detail there was and how much information there is. Sometimes you just have to ask the right question to find it. So the original research that came out of the project I think has been a major contribution uh, to Florida history.
0: Today, Fort Mose is known as the first legally sanctioned free black community in what is now the United States. Prior to Kathy Deegan identifying the site of Fort Mose, the fascinating history of the community was not well known.
1: Before the archaeological program, there really wasn't very much awareness at all of Fort Mose. There were a few scholarly articles, uh, but they weren't in uh, mainstream sort of publications that everyone would read about. And the history wouldn't have been unknown or lost without the archaeology because there were always some people who knew it was here. But I think it brought it to a much wider understanding and appreciation and the ripples that came out of that have really lasted down to today and we hope into the future in terms of community interest and awareness.
0: Francisco Menendez escaped slavery to begin a new life in Florida. His military skill and bravery defending St. Augustine from attack led to his being named head of the militia at Fort Mose.
1: The leader of the group at Fort Mose and the head of the militia, Francisco Menendez, has to be one of the most interesting people and colorful people in Florida history, maybe even American history. He was a Mandingo. He came to the Carolinas, probably as a youth, and escaped slavery. He allied with the Yamasee Indians in their fight against the English at the Yamasee War. Came with the Yamasee to Florida, went through several series of being betrayed and sold into slavery and escaping. He was a corsair. He was uh, apparently a a well-educated person. He could write and did write and was, his story is really remarkable. You wouldn't really believe it if you saw it in a movie. You would think it was invented.
0: The community of Fort Mose was short-lived. When the British took control of Florida from Spain in 1763, Fort Mose was abandoned.
1: When Florida was ceded to England in exchange for Havana after the end of the Seven Years' War, uh, all of the residents of St. Augustine, left rather than stay and live with the protestant english and all of the people of mose uh, were among them there were 86 people at mose then and they uh, all went to cuba to the province of matanzas uh, where some of them stayed many of them left and moved back to havana but uh, the records of, of their lives have been uncovered in cuba again by jane landers who is learning uh, with their fate and if there might even be some descendants today.
0: People of African descent have been an integral part of Florida history from even before the Spanish colonial period. All of the Spanish ships that came to Florida in the 16th century had black people on board, and not all of them were slaves. Kathy Deegan.
1: People of African descent have been uh, coming to Florida and part of Florida since it was known to exist in Europe. Uh, Ponce de Leon had free black sailors and soldiers with him. Um, There were probably black soldiers with, or sailors at least, with Pedro Menendez. We know that immediately he rescued a lot of the captives from shipwrecks, particularly in South Florida, and among them were a number of African heritage or mixed blood mulatto people. And they had been here even before Menendez. And it's sort of interesting to think about the capture of all of these shipwrecked victims over the years before uh, Florida was settled because not all of the first slaves here were black. Most of them in fact were white, but they were slaves of the Calusa and the Tumuqua.
0: So the woman who discovered the original site of St. Augustine, the oldest continuously occupied city in what is now the United States, is even more proud to have discovered the actual site of Fort Mose. She says that the archaeology at Fort Mose has expanded our understanding of history.
1: Well, the story of Fort Mose is really important for all of American history, not just Florida. Uh, It provides, I think, a wide audience an alternate vision of what African-American heritage in America is is all about. It wasn't just a story of slavery and oppression. It was also this very successful story of resistance and flight and rebuilding a new place and a new time.
0: Fort Mose Historic Park is located two miles north of St. Augustine, where there is an interpretive museum There is also a long boardwalk that allows you to walk out over a marshy area to view the island where Fort Mose once stood. That's where we spoke with Kathy Deegan, Distinguished Research Curator and Professor Emerita from the University of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, find out where you can watch the new television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society and receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. The quarterly is now available in both print and electronic formats. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, we're looking at some traditional
2: Seminole Indian clothing. When people generally conjure up an idea of what the Seminole Indian tribe looks like, they usually think of these brightly colored uh, patchwork uh, garment items, usually clothing, skirts, things like that, with these elaborate uh, detailed decorations. But really, the the history of Seminole clothing goes back uh, prior to that period, which really starts in the 20th century. When we look at the Seminole tribe in Florida, we have to go all the way back to about the 18th century, when Seminole Indians first started uh, identifying as a unique cultural uh, tribe within the state of Florida. Uh, They're descended from kind of an amalgamation of peoples from southern Georgia and Alabama, the Creek Indian tribes, and they kind of again uh, created their own culturally significant tribal identity. And it's at this time period they began trading heavily with uh, Europeans, namely trading European goods for deerskins. So they were getting away from the uh, traditional garments that they would have worn that would have been produced from natural items, say from deerskin, otter, pelts, things like that. And they were wearing European clothing, uh, long white shirts, we usually called trade shirts. We see some early paintings of Seminole Indians where they're adorning silver and gold necklaces. Uh, they started producing beaded work. And a lot of that was often traded to Europeans and, and made their way to the New World. When we get to the 20th century, after the end of the Seminole Indian Wars in the mid-19th century, we start to see a new trend uh, emerge, and that's what we call patchwork. And a lot of that really centers around the invention of and dissemination of the sewing machine, Uh, first the manual and then later the electrified sewing machine that allowed Seminole Indian women to piece together fragments of clothing into what we now call patchwork. And now that practice evolved into uh, kind of an elaborate decoration. And a lot of the items we see today have cultural significance that have kind of been uh, integrated into the tribal culture. And this particular
0: garment we're looking at is one of these patchwork seminal skirts from the early 20th century
2: yeah that's right I, I pulled this particular garment out of the collection it's a an example of what would have been produced in the early 20th century we believe this dates from about the mid to late 1930s uh, and what we're looking at today is actually a dress uh it, the the base color is actually black but you'll see there are four distinct bands And each band is actually its own piece of clothing. So this isn't applique. Uh, It isn't applied to the black fabric. It's actually sewn in as an individual piece of the garment. Uh, And according to the uh, donor's note, this this particular garment was donated about 20 years ago to the Historical Society. But according to the donor's note, when she purchased this dress in the 1930s, the seminal woman who manufactured it explained that each band had a cultural significance. If we look at this first band, it's supposed to represent lightning. Uh, the second band is actually thunder. This fourth band, believe it or not, is a uh, turtle, uh, turtle track. And the last one is actually electrical poles, uh, electrification. It's supposed to represent the uh, beginnings of electrification into a lot of these tribal areas, uh, which is kind of interesting. It gives us a snapshot of where the tribe was on this particular reservation, kind of culturally and, and where they were temporally. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating piece of, of the Seminole tribe. Now the woman who had this she bought it from a seminal indian woman on the brighton reservation right around the late 1930s uh, and that was an important part of, of the story as well these garments were being produced not necessarily to be worn although they certainly were uh, being worn but they were being produced specifically for the tourism trade these were souvenirs uh, you'll see a lot of early postcards that depict uh, tourists who are visiting these sites off the tam miami trail and buying these garments and they were very very popular again uh, because they're so strikingly beautiful, they, they integrated these wonderfully bright colors. Uh, again, there's that cultural significance with each band, and, and people really love that. And they'd come to visit Florida, uh, they would buy one of these garments, take it home with them, and then explain the wonderful story about what they found here in South Florida. And Seminole clothing is still a popular Florida souvenir for some folks today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There are a number of of women who are members of the Seminole Indian tribe that still manufacture this, and it's still done by hand. So uh, here we are almost a hundred years later, and it's become a, a very integral part of the Seminole tribal culture. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director
0: of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Pipes are among the artifacts discovered to have been used by some of Florida's indigenous tribes. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at how those pipes were used.
3: Timuqua Indians uh, gardened, I would say. They weren't extensive farmers, but they grew some corn and they grew squashes and they probably had beans and they also grew a kind of tobacco uh, that much, much stronger than we use today and used it largely for ritual purposes. They probably put it onto fires and then inhaled the smoke. They used it in curing ceremonies uh, and actually didn't, you know, smoke it like we think of smoking in pipes or cigarettes or cigars. They used it as a sacred herb and used it in ceremonies.
4: That was Dr. Gerald Melanich, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Florida. He spoke with me about tobacco use among the native pre-Columbian people of Florida. People often associate tobacco smoking with pre-Columbian societies in the Americas, but Dr. Melanich tells us that this practice was not widespread.
3: I have to say in all honesty, I can't think of any uh, Tomuqua pipes that have been excavated in Florida. We know that in South Florida, there are little pipes called platform pipes that were used that look like sort of a kazoo-shaped thing that they smoked perhaps tobacco or other kinds of herbs and things. And, and often people, if you inhaled powerful smoke from this powerful tobacco, you m- and other things they may have put in it, it may have been had a hallucinogenic effect. And throughout the world, shaman, uh, religious practitioners and societies often use such herbs or, you know, hallucinogens to help them transport themselves from everyday life to the life of the spirits where they can see visions and so forth, to communicate with the spirits in the other world. And so tobacco and perhaps smoking or at least inhaling tobacco smoke among the Timuqua was not like darting outside of your classroom to smoke a cigarette. It was used for religious purposes.
4: Archaeologists have found ancient Indian pipes in Florida. Dr. Marlanich explains where many of these pipes have been found.
3: Most of them in Florida were fired clay. They would make them out of the same clays that they made the ceramics from. In some mounds, there have been found stone pipes that were made of of stone that came from like the Appalachian Mountains, so probably were very valued items that were obtained through trade networks and, and brought into Florida and used under special occasions. There may also have been pipes made from, you know, wood in that, but because they haven't been found preserved, they're just very uncommon I, I would say among the St. John's culture.
4: Most of the pre Columbian pipes that have been uncovered were found in mounds. Dr. Neil Wallace, assistant curator of archaeology at the Florida Museum of Natural History, describes why this fact is important.
5: Tobacco and pipes were made as early as several thousand years ago in the eastern woodlands of north america including in in florida so we find ceramic pipes and also stone pipes as early as about 2500 years ago perhaps more in in eastern florida and they show up in in burial mound contexts and um, tobacco smoking was uh, was definitely a, a ceremonial endeavor there's reasons that they show up in burial mounds the practice of smoking was ceremonial, and also a lot of these objects, especially the stone pipes that were made from uh, stone, sometimes as far away as the Midwest of North America, those had ceremonial and prestige value. And so a lot of objects like that end up in burial mounds.
4: That was Dr. Gerald Milanich and Dr. Neil Wallace. I interviewed them and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida Podcast, which can be found on iTunes and on the internet. I
0: am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen to the program online or as a podcast. Don't miss the new Florida Frontiers television series, which is airing all over the state. Check myfloridahistory.org for upcoming airtimes. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.